Hey everyone, welcome back to the Capital Volume 1 guide slash reading series. This time obviously we're doing chapter 7, which is quite big. This chapter is essentially split into two general parts. The first part being about the transhistorical labor process, so the process of physically laboring to get use values, and then the social elements of labor, which relate to obviously surplus value and how surplus value is created, which we will finally get to in chapter 7. These two differences obviously relate to the double-sided nature of the commodity as well, because we're talking about the process of production that produces a commodity. So we have the use value, obviously the physical thing, which is the actual labor itself, which happens regardless of history, and then we have the exchange value, which is the part of the thing that relates to the value form, only happens in capitalism. It's a human social relationship. So obviously, continuing where we left off in chapter 6, the capitalist buys the labor power, and consumes it through actual labor. Again, as a reminder, labor power is the purchase of the laborer's labor in general. So it's you can sort of see it as a potentiality that is then used. So labor power in action, which is still, of course, labor power, becomes concrete labor for a particular type of labor. And I can talk about what labor power means, really, and Marx's use of it, I think, in the premium. What's important to note, though, is that it's power in the sense of like an innate capacity within an individual to exert themselves onto the world. It's not power in the sense of like a top-down, you know, the, the capitalist has power over the laborer's labor, you know, it's not that. So Marx goes on to say that labor is a synthesis of man and nature. So the laborer appropriates nature to act for his purposes and intentions. And again, this is, a, this is the part of labor that is a general capacity for human beings. In this sense, there is no difference between the laborer laboring freely and laboring for the capitalist in the sense that they have an idea of how they want to change nature, whether that idea is to create like a pinhead for the capitalist or it's to create subsistence for themselves, let's say. Then they use, you know, their hands, their nerves, their mind, their physical body to change nature to meet that sort of idea. Now for Marx, this is different than animals. Animals don't labor in this sense. Animals go by essentially, you know, instinct and not intellect. Whereas for Marx, men or human beings subordinate nature to their will. And, you know, uh, this is, of course, a, a humanism of sorts. It's saying, it's noting this exceptionalism within the human species. And that obviously can also be problematized, uh, whether non-human animals also have this capacity. And I, I can talk about that more on the premium, but again, that's more of an aside. So importantly for Marx, there are three general factors of labor. This is, again, labor in the sense of how it always happens for human beings. There is a personal activity of labor, so the physical work that the laborer does, the subject of the work, so what type of labor it is, and the instruments of labor. So in catching a fish, for instance, the personal activity is all the things, you know, one has to do to catch a fish. The subject of the work is catching fish, and the instruments of the labor is, say, a fishing pole. Unless, of course, one is catching fish with their bare hands, which is a real thing that I've seen done. It's very cool. Some labor, obviously, is done immediately beside nature. So catching fish is an example, mining ore, cutting down trees. Uh, this is, of course, because human beings need some initial contact with nature in the first place. Human labor needs some interaction with physical things with nature, or you're just, what are you laboring on? You know, you can't produce anything if you're not dealing with nature in some way. 
These activities produce raw materials, the ones done immediately beside nature. Although Marx will use the term raw material to not just talk about, you know, materials taken from nature. He'll also talk about raw materials in terms of like the input in production. So there's a, there's a double sense. So like he'll call uh, cotton a raw material um, in this sort of expansive definition of raw materials when talking about making yarn. But, but some work is done beside nature. And obviously in the dawn of time, all work was done beside nature because you must have first appropriate nature to be able to get instruments of labor. And instruments are essentially things interposed between the laborer and the subject of labor. This is how nature becomes what Marx calls an organ of activity. So humans mold certain elements of nature, obviously through labor, into instruments that better allow for labor. This is also a general account that isn't too far off of like even Locke's account of labor. Locke, of course, I, I shouldn't talk about this too much because it's sort of an aside, but Locke basically thinks that we are mini gods. So God gave us the power to create just like he does. And we create through interacting with, with, with nature. Obviously, Marx removes the God element, but you can see the similarities here. And obviously, the more humans labor and the more parts of nature we get, the better instruments we get. This isn't obviously the only story in relation to increases in production, but it is, but it is an important part of it. And even, you know, things that even transfer materials, such as jars, pots, crates, etc., are also instruments of labor because they transfer the subject of labor, maybe it's cotton, maybe it's fish, etc., to someone who is going to labor on it more, and they therefore count as instruments. This obviously is more important in the circulation of capital and the instruments of circulation, the means of circulation, uh, which is less obviously uh, related to volume one. But human labor is, of course, itself a part of nature as well. I've talked about this before. All wealth comes from nature, fundamentally. Human labor is a part of nature, right? Your physical mind, your arms, your legs, your nerves that move your, your, your body, etc., are a part of the natural world. But nature takes a very specific form as a result of what I guess you can call human exceptionalism. This part of nature, so humans, take other parts of nature and transform themselves to meet humans' own image or humans' own desires. We make things that alter the world to suit our spontaneous creative desires. And obviously, the desires of human beings are very important in relation to labor. The, our ability to make subsistence in general, our want to consume things for our own either desires or even just our ability to uh, continue surviving. And this exists regardless of the social formation, regardless of whether it's capitalism, feudalism, or you know, a, a classless, stateless society, people labor to be able to make subsistence, to be able to consume things through subsistence. And if you have a system that doesn't do that, then there is a very big problem. Everything collapses. You know, if labor is not being done to meet the desires of individuals, then it is useless. So, you know, if labor is done to make an instrument of labor and it fails, then that labor is also pointless. And, and within the capitalist system, the value form's purpose is to give people use values fundamentally, right? There's this social validity or recognition through exchange value. It does this to be able to give people at the end of the day use values. As I talked about before, this is the final cycle, the end of a commodity circulation. And if people stop getting use values for whatever reason, if people don't have enough money to buy anything, for instance, then we have a crisis. The value form is upended. It can't do the thing that it is meant to do. 
And the thing that it's meant to do relates to something that has always existed throughout history or even and before history, which is to labor to create use values and to create subsistence for individuals. Now, importantly, the instruments and the subjects of labor are what Marx essentially considers the means of production. We have finally, in I think like the what, 140th odd page, encountered a part of Marx or a phrase that I think a general account of Marx will be well familiar with. And because of this, you should remove, for now, the general common association of what the means of production is. Because it might be a little bit off of how Marx actually uses it. The means of production is basically, quite literally, the physical means to produce things, to labor. You need a subject of labor for labor, so the thing you will labor on, the fish you want to catch, the wood to chop down, and you need the instruments to do that labor, whether it's a fishing rod, whether it's an axe, etc. Now, obviously, use values that have been labored on previously can enter into new production cycles as parts of the means of production as well. We understand this as it relates to instruments of labor, because they're the means to produce things, but also, of course, it relates to some you know, raw materials. Cotton is something that has already been labored on. It's already been you know, picked and sorted and probably transferred. But then for the purpose of spinning yarn, it becomes a part of the means of production, the means to produce yarn. Now, the, the products lose their original character when they're combined into the labor process. They're essentially homogenized, is what I mean. When they're labored on, how that labor is done or who does it is not supposed to matter. It only matters when someone fucks up, typically. Because you're like, oh, the reason why you know, that yarn is fucked up is because of Jeff. I know Jeff, he, he, he didn't labor on the thing properly. And therefore, we have a, you know, a deficient piece of yarn. The point of laboring in the labor process here is to essentially create a homogenized product. And this is a crucial part of a larger division of labor. Division of labor, I don't think I've ever explicitly expanded on what this idea is. I've just treated it as a sort of ubiquitous thing. But it's, you know, it's how the labor process is divided up. When you look at a pencil, who does the labor to mine the graphite? Who does the labor to cut down the trees? Who does the labor to combine these things, to, to mine the iron? You know, this is how the labor process is divided. And for a larger division of labor, and even, you know, again, something like a pencil, which is relatively trivial, quite a lot of things have to be done to make that use value. And each cycle of that labor prepares the next one for the job. Following this, uh, instruments and machines that aren't labored on are, of course, useless. It's only in the active motion of concrete labor that an instrument of labor has a use. This is the same for raw materials. So, you know, cotton by itself doesn't really have a use. Its only use relates to further laboring on it. So Marx notes of how living labor awakens the dead labor contained within these raw materials. You know, allows the labor to mean something as it relates to a use value, a, a consumption. And what we're talking about here is a thing that happens regardless of history. It doesn't necessarily relate to the value form. It relates to physical wealth, to use values and the labor process. Because again, obviously, wealth exists regardless of whether capitalism is here or not. There's always going to be people laboring, and there's going to be wealth, and there's going to be consumption of things for personal uses. Marx also importantly notes, and, and all of these things will, in the labor, later half of this episode, in the later half of this chapter, be connected to capitalist production. Um, so you're wondering why this is sort of relatively long. Marx notes importantly of how raw materials are consumed as a means of production when altered by labor. 
And consumed is sort of, it's a confusing terminology here. But what that really means is that their physical substance, their use as it exists, is eliminated. The cotton no longer becomes cotton. It is consumed, but for production. So it becomes yarn. So there are two ways of consuming a use value, either for you know, subsistence, for personal use, or you can consume it for production. Obviously, you can consume it by just destroying it, but that's not, we don't care about that. But the same goes for the instruments of production. So when you labor on instruments, let's even say just basic example, like a fishing rod, there's a certain amount of fish on average that you will catch, and eventually the fishing rod will be destroyed. Let's say it's, and this is a random number, it's probably very wrong, 10,000 fish, and a regular fishing rod stops being used. As you are laboring with the fishing rod, you are consuming the means of production. You're, they're being physically destroyed for the sake of producing, by being the mediator between labor and the natural world. So this is, consumption for production is um, the sense of using up raw materials that are a part of production and breaking down instruments of labor. And again, the difference between productive consumption and personal consumption is for the most part in personal consumption, the thing is joined with you. You eat a steak, you consume it, it is now in you, you know. With consumption for production, that is not necessarily the case. It is not combined with the consumer. Now, obviously, it's easy to see how later on, with consumption for the sake of production, the laborer who is only selling their labor power does not have the legal ownership of the thing that they produce through that consumption. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Th but this broad labor process that I've marked out happens regardless of the social formation it exists within. It's not dealing with concrete human social relations, but with humans in general. Labor is, quote, an everlasting nature-imposed condition of human existence. So it's human action with a view to the production of use values, the appropriation of natural subsistences to human requirements, and a necessary condition for effecting exchange of matter between man and nature. That is what labor is for Marx. This is a very technical definition because those last three points were quotes as well. So now that we have that established, that general idea, let's go back to capitalism and the capitalist. So the capitalist, as we saw him before, has the objective conditions required for the extraction of surplus value. This is what we talked about with the market. The capitalist goes into the market, buys the labor power, has the means of production, and goes back into the factory. He has the commodities of labor power, especially in Marx's time. It was a, a he. Um, there weren't many women who owned capitalist firms. He has the commodities for labor power, the commodities being the general ability of someone to labor for a certain amount of time, so labor power purchased as a commodity, and the means of production, which are also commodities, so raw materials and likely instruments of labor. And he will get the laborer to consume the means of production through their labor and produce a product to sell on the market. He produces that product, he sells it, and he makes more money usually. How does he make more money? How does that work? What the fuck is going on? Well, Importantly, as I said before, one of the conditions is that the product of labor, of the laborer, is of the ownership of the capitalist and not of the laborer. Again, the capitalist is buying the rights to use labor power. He's in a position in which all he is paying the laborer is their means of subsistence. He's not paying them for the value produced by the laborer. So the use value of the laborer's labor belongs to the capitalist. All that this labor creates is the capitalist's legal property. The capitalist is not stealing from the worker. And I don't mean this in the moral sense, I mean it in the literal sense. Is the capitalist's property. 
And I can go over why surplus value isn't really theft and how that's actually, a, I think, harmful, even if rhetorically potentially powerful um, way of viewing it. I'll go over that more in the premium because that's uh, a sort of a side note. But, but in this labor process, the only reason use values are produced is because they are depositories of exchange value for the capitalist. So that, again, the whole point of labor, and just in general, is to change and alter nature in a certain way to give people use values. But the capitalist doesn't give a shit about use values. He only cares about them insofar as he can make money. Here we see how when the capitalist follows their interest to make more money, they are producing use values. But they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because it's in their interest to do so. The capitalist wants to, one, produce a thing with use values that can be sold, and two, more importantly, produce a thing whose some value is greater than the value of its components. So that some value being greater is obviously surplus value. The components are the means of production that is consumed and labor power. Notice how I say labor power and not the value that that labor produces, because those are two different things. That is why the equation is off here, obviously. Why when a capitalist is doing their job correctly, they produce a thing that has more value than the value they invested. So commodity production is both a labor process and a value-producing process. It's a dual-sided nature of the labor process that comes out of, as I mentioned before, the dual-sided nature of the commodity. We have the physical part of the labor that is the use value. Use values always exist. And then we have the social elements, the exchange value and the value, which only exist in capitalism. And we have already gone over commodity production as a labor process, so we can now cover it as a value-producing process, the other part of it. The value of each commodity is, of course, determined by the quantity of labor in the abstract. This is, you know, chapters one to three. So the time necessary in social conditions of production. So let's get an example of this social production to see how it works. So a, a, a few numbers, but, you know, if you can't do it in your head, which is probably fair, um, you can just take my word that I'm adding all of this up correctly. So a capitalist buys 10 yards of cotton for $10, let's say. We're going to assume that the capitalist is buying it at its full value. In spinning this 10 yards of cotton, the spindle's wear is also $2. And we calculate this on averages, obviously. This is the amount of the spindle, the thing that spins the cotton into yarn, that breaks down on average when you make 10 yards of yarn. How we calculate this is, like I said before about the fishing rod. If it takes 40 yards of cotton to break a spindle, and let's say a spindle costs $8, then that means that we've broken down on average one-fourth of a spindle, so it's about $2. So the physical amount that goes into making 10 yards of yarn is 10 yards of cotton and a quarter of a spindle machine. That is what is consumed. See, I mentioned this before in terms of the, the physical labor process because you can't ignore the physical labor process and the other aspect of, of, of production, which is the social aspect of it. But importantly, within capitalism, and this is only happens within capitalism, the spindle breaking down and the cotton consumed are combined in the equation of value. So they're added together to, to help understand the value of yarn. So in this equation so far, not counting obviously the value added in the labor itself, we have $10, the cotton, plus $2, the part of the spindle that breaks down in production, to equal $12. Now this process is value congealing onto the yarn. And it only happens in nature of the fact that the labor being done to the cotton and the spindle is useful. It creates a product that is useful. Obviously, 
If you consumed $10 worth of cotton and broke down $2 worth or so of a spindle and created something that wasn't useful, then you would just lose that value. That value would be destroyed. And the fact that we can add these values together is what Marx, I believe, refers to as the sort of gift of, of labor. The ability that labor has to preserve the value of the consumed means of production within previous labor cycles. This has nothing to do with the value literally added by the labor itself, just in virtue of the fact that it is useful labor. If you are consuming $1,000 of a means of production, like a material that goes into it, and your labor only adds $3, let's say, you are still preserving that $1,000 in virtue of creating a product that is useful. So the value of a product is obviously additive. You add the value that it takes to make the cotton, to make the spindle, and then to weave the cotton into yarn. But only if that yarn is useful. It has nothing to do with how much the laborer is paid and how much even they produce, but is nevertheless a, a product of very specifically capitalism. Because this has nothing directly to do with the physical labor process. It has only to do with the social validity of the cotton and the spindle. And if that social validity changes, the value being transferred also changes. You know, the cotton, let's say the cotton is now $8, and the part of the spindle that breaks down is only one. Then this part of the value equation is only nine bucks. There's only $9 transferred from what is called constant capital, but we'll, we'll get into that later, into the product. So, so far, of course, in this equation, value is only being preserved. If this was all the story, then there'd be no way for the capitalist to make money. So in our search to find where surplus value comes from, we obviously have to look at labor. The yarn's value is $12 plus however much labor goes into producing the yarn. One hour of spinning, on average, is one extra hour of labor that is embodied in the yarn. And this is obviously related to the amount of labor done in normal conditions of production, so it's socially necessary labor time. So the value equation comes from the value of the consumed means of production, the cotton and the spindle, and then a certain amount of value is also absorbed into those in virtue of socially useful labor being done. So let's say that the 10 pounds of yarn being spun indicate an absorption of six hours of socially necessary labor. Now let's say that the monetary expression of labor time, which is not a term that Marx uses. Marx uses the monetary expression of labor time, he just doesn't have a phrase for it. But let's say the monetary expression of labor time is $0.5 an hour. The monetary expression of labor time essentially just meaning the amount of value that labor on average produces in an hour. So if the monetary expression of labor time is $0.5 an hour and you labor on average for an hour, you are producing $0.5 worth of value. Now for Marx, the monetary expression of labor time is calculated in relation to gold. So obviously in Marx's time, gold is connected to money. So let's say every hour of laboring on gold creates $0.5 of gold. So that's how we would calculate it then. We can still calculate the melt now. It, it's a more complicated process now, obviously, that a commodity isn't attached to money, but it is still possible. Melt, the melt does still exist. The monetary expression of labor time, obviously. But let's say, yeah, it's $0.5 an hour. So let's say every hour of labor on average produces $0.5. And if the laborer spins 10 pounds of yarn, then $3 of value is added to the yarn by spinning. So the total price we have for the 10 yards of yarn is $15. Now let's also assume 
that the value of the laborer's wage is also six hours on average of labor. So it takes six hours of socially necessary labor time to also produce the laborer's daily subsistence. So their wage is also $3. But we have a problem here, right? Because for the capitalist, at least, we have a problem. Because the yarn is worth $15. It's $10 of cotton, $2 of spindle, and $3 of labor. So six hours of labor to equal 15. But the capitalist paid 15 bucks for all of the components of labor. Paid $10 for the cotton. The spindle broke down for, you know, $2. And he paid the laborer $3. He paid them his daily wage, which is six hours of socially necessary labor time. So Marx has his rhetorical points where it's like the capitalist goes to the market and he's shocked because he doesn't make any money. And, you know, surely he should make some money. He, he risked his stock. He threw it into production and then pulls it back out and there's nothing. And it's, there's no capital. Money has not been converted to capital here. The capitalist does not pass go, does not collect any profit. This, this is Marx's way of saying that if the laborer's wage, you know, the socially necessary labor time it takes to produce their subsistence is the same as the amount of time that they physically labor, then there is no surplus value. The capitalist does not make any money. There's no, there's no value added by the capitalist, you know, making a risk and in investing something. Because that's not how value works. So the reason he doesn't get any money is because the laborer only worked for six hours and the daily labor time to meet subsistence was also six hours, $3. So how about instead of working for six hours and spinning just 10 yards of yarn, the capitalist hires the laborer for 12 hours. 12 hours being in Marx's day, a full working day. Now, obviously, the, the average working day has gone down since then, although, you know, it's also going up now because labor is incredibly weak. But a full working day in Marx's time is assumed to be about 12 hours or so. So let's assume that the capitalist hires the worker instead of for six hours, for 12 hours. Now, remember, the value produced by labor is not necessarily the same than the value of its maintenance. And the capitalist was, of course, banking on this difference when he bought labor power in the first place. He knew that the value he was going to get out of that labor would be more than the laborer's subsistence. So this is the process of valorization. So when value is created out of itself, comes from the discrepancy between the value of the maintenance of labor power, as I went over before, or the laborer's subsistence, and the value produced by that labor in a single day. You're in reference to the final part of chapter six that I read off at the end of, I think, the premium episode last week. Quote, our capitalist foresaw these things, and that was the cause of his laughter. Why he was so happy to buy the labor power in the market and come back to the factory, because he knew that the sum of the value of production was going to be lower than the value of the thing produced. So now let's analyze a full day's worth of labor. So instead of six hours or half a day's work, we get a full day's. Instead, now, it's 20 yards of linen produced in 12 hours. These 20 yards contain five whole days of labor within them, or $30, double the 10 yards. And again, Marx calculates this $30 because it takes five whole days of labor to produce the yarn. And again, this is the aggregate of labor, right? It's not just the labor required to make the yarn. It's the labor required to make the spindle machine that is broken down, and the labor required to make the cotton, as well as the labor required to combine them. So it's an aggregate, which makes sense, of course. 
the price would you know continue to go up. It, it wouldn't just be contingent on the amount of labor in the last part of the labor cycle. This goes back to the division of labor. It's quite expansive. There's a lot of labor that goes into making all of the different things that is added together. So in this 12 hours, the laborer has made $30 worth of cotton. But the price of production of the cotton for this 12 hours is only $27. Where does this discrepancy come from? How could this possibly be? I think it's pretty clear. The labor power is only paid for six hours of socially necessary labor time, just as it was before. It's paid for the maintenance of labor. The laborer can survive to labor another day. So now we have a surplus value of $3 in the day, as labor power is being paid for less than it is producing. Money has successfully been converted to capital. Do collect $200, or I guess $3, and do pass go. In this example, the capitalist buys everything at its full value. He buys the labor power for its value, which is subsistence, buys the cotton for its value, and the spindle for its value. And he sells it at full value, because the 20 yards of cotton is worth $30. And he has added six hours, or $3 of value. This is what valorization means, again. It is value producing itself. The value pr is produced from the labor, of course from the discrepancy between the value of labor power and the value produced by that labor power. The capitalist triumphantly returns to the market as a seller, receives $30, just as we had analyzed in the previous episode in the M to C to M prime relationship. So here we have a vague idea of both elements of the equation. We have what the capitalist does on the market. He has money buys commodities, sells those commodities, and has more money, and we have the vague process of surplus value extraction. The conversion of money into capital therefore requires activity on the market as well as activity outside the market. And that's where I'll call it for the free episode. Um, the premium, I'll go a bit more into the subject of labor in general, because I think it's very interesting. You know, Marxist humanism, as well as the idea of theft. Is surplus value extraction theft? And what are the, I think, actually rhetorical downsides of calling it theft? Also, it just in the technical understanding of Marx, you may find this pedantic, but that's your criticism of Marx, not of me. It is not theft. Surplus value extraction is not theft. But I'll, I'll go into that on the premium because it's sort of tangential and not necessary for understanding. $2 a month, patreon.com slash And I will see you guys next week.